we're talking about chapter three, Rivendell, and chapter three, or four, sorry, goblins. That's not what they're called, but <laughs> that's what we're talking about. Um, and uh, I have some thoughts of my own, and mostly a bunch of notes that Sarah gave me that I've been going through. Um, and two people with wildly different perspectives and lots of insight. This is also uh, Eloise's first time reading The Hobbit, which I think is amazing. Um, and uh, I don't know, it, it's a wild perspective. And also, like, I am definitely... I feel like I will come back to the question of, like, how is this different from fan fiction, which I know you've read, and, like, expect a more in-depth answer than there's less smut. It's technically a correct answer, so... I mean, yeah, but, like, I feel like it also goes without saying, you know? Like, but, I mean, I, also, I, I, I mean, if... If The Hobbit was on AO3, then it would be, like, rated, like, G, right? Like, yeah. it wouldn't even be in the same. Yeah. <laughs> there is non-smutty fanfiction. You realize this? Well, oh yeah, no, it exists, but just, like, that is not the average. <laughs> I feel like it's less common. In my defense... For this stupid answer, which is still true, um, is I currently am deep, deep dive into the Witcher fanfictions, and I have a big, big blank on any Tolkien fanfiction I've read, because it's been a couple, it's been months, if not years, since I've done that. So that's fair. I mean, you can you can palliate reading... this problem by sending me more fanfictions. I'm absolutely agreeing to that. I will not uh, stop you, and I might even read them. Amazing. Nice. I will probably do that. That would be really funny. Um, all right. So, okay. Uh, well, I'm Sophia, and I one of the things I want to talk about is um, that little bit where it blames the goblins for industrialization, because that's really interesting, and there's a lot there. Who wants to go next? Sure. Uh, my name is Jordan. Uh, uh, he, him. Uh, and uh, there's a certain mixture since I've been reading this, like, you know, catching up of the of a kind of mix of like, um, I don't know if it's because it's a children's story, but there's a certain amount of like, providence or a special coincidence that comes out in this story uh like you know uh, with the media of the trolls and getting to uh you know seeing the moon letters it's like oh yes it it had to be on midsummer and you somehow got here on precisely the right day and i feel like in 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 like lord of the rings that would feel far more serious but there's a certain whimsy that comes out of it that also sometimes feels almost more like um not not like fan fiction to me but like a role playing game <laughs> this is like 
uh, I, I really felt this catching up and reading through uh, chapter two with the meeting of the trolls and just, I don't know. There's a certain way that narrator talks about it because it's not, um, it, feel, it feels far more like, uh, or it's like, Bil it was Bilbo having heard stories about what other burglars have done. <laughs> and it's like, at first time role player being like, I know what's I know what's supposed what I'm supposed to do. I will try and pick the troll's pocket and then he like rolls terribly. Yeah. Um and that has been a very funny thing going back into this book and just being like things just kind of suddenly appear and uh I guess maybe I'm appreciating how much Right, like the change in genre between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, like takes this, you know, kind of story where things just kind of happen. It is like, no, no, we're gonna like world build this into a consistent like universe and not just, hey, we, uh, okay, we met the trolls and now we're gonna go into the valley where all the singing elves are. <laughs> oh. Yeah, we've like definitely talked about um the meta humor of all of it like the way they talk about like an adventure and you know heroes in um a very yeah. very tongue-in-cheek way uh eloise what about you um opinion on those two chapters um i i like that because like in the first two chapters, it's like, yeah, the travel, it's like from the Shire, which is very nice to the Lone Line, which is very crappy. Um, but they don't really expand on like how, what makes those lands hard to traverse and like hard to go through. And those two chapters do a little bit more, like beyond the trolls of the chapter two, like you also have the, the fact that it's longer distance than they expect. It's hidden. It's the mountains. It's treacherous. You have giants around and goblins under. And like, um, it's. I know, like, a lot of people, like, the joke is to give shit to Tolkien for, like, constantly talking about landscape. But I feel like, uh, in in The Hobbit, it has, it's like, he wants to talk about landscape, but he's also telling a child story. So he has to tell them about the landscape through the actions of the characters and through the misery of the characters, rather than tell the stories and the lore through the landscape as he does in Lord of the Rings, which is also very cool when you look into it, even though most readers are apparently bored by it, but like, you know, you do what you do. Um, that, that's an interesting, uh, like, change. I mean, I guess it's the original, but, like, uh, that's an interesting difference between the two, and I think that it's particularly interesting that Tolkien is able to, like, navigate the two. I, honestly, I wasn't expecting, like, anyone to bring that up, but I felt that, too. I was thinking about that. Um, 
about how uh, in the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, the landscape is very much like all its own person and its own thing. And in The Hobbit, it feels much more like a lot of the landscape is not so much existing for itself as being a thematic aid to the storytelling. Um, <laughs> where it's um, the descriptions of it emphasize certain like experiences that Bilbo's going through or they mirror things that Bilbo is going through. Um, there's definitely, in my opinion at least, less of a feeling of independent life to the landscape descriptions in The Hobbit compared to The Lord of the Rings. And like, I wonder how much of that comes from this, like the first time this was written, it wasn't set in Middle Earth specifically. Right. I mean, that's that's also a pretty fair like it's almost sometimes when reading this it's like uh i kind of forget or i like i don't put on the like uh the the lord of the rings like map entirely mm. because the hobbit map is literally like a straight line right yeah. you're just going you're just going east and then back and so there's like you know reading like chapter 2 and 3 and you're like right like all of book one of the Lord of the Rings takes place in that exact same stretch. But we're not, like, I don't think of, right, um, I, I have to almost remind myself to think, like, oh, when the, when Bilbo's talking about how they start off in decent lands, right, he, we're, once we're talking about Lord of the Rings, we're talking about Bree, like, Breeland. Yeah. And Buck, like, Buckland yeah. and Breeland. And then getting further out into Weathertop, where only, like, you know, maybe a few <laughs> wandering rangers are. Um, because it's, like, it's super easy just to go from, like, Shire to Trollshaws in your head. Because yeah. it just skips that. But that's also because, right, it's the Lord of the Rings that is flushing this out and not the other way around. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's... I think it... Yeah, I think it's both interesting and important to kind of always be reading The Hobbit in two mindsets and holding kind of two right. somewhat contradictory ideas, like always be reading it both as something that was originally written without uh, much of a connection to the legendarium and therefore exists as its own thing, and we shouldn't necessarily expect perfect continuity, but then simultaneously read it as something that is meant to connect to these other books and that was deliberately edited and rewritten to fit them better yeah i mean that makes especially like elrond like super interesting in this story because right we have him here being uh like named like the lord of the half elven which is mm -hmm. I mean, when you say it like that, it sounds completely different from like, oh, the half-elven are Elrond and his kids, <laughs> right? Which is kind of what we get uh, in The Lord of the Rings, right? Like, that's... Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's an elf society ruled over by, like, the singular half-elf. <laughs> um, and, and then his children who 
also just get to choose uh you know uh, their fates uh but also like that also makes gondolin right because he's like oh the sword was made in gondolin right right and this is tolkien reworking a very tiny hint of his silmarillion into this story and just being like it's yeah sure <laughs> we could we could just like name drop it here uh, and it's like, how on earth did a, you know, did a troll get a, the, you know, the king of Gondolin's sword? How did he get Turgon's sword? That is ridiculous and very funny. That's what I liked is like uh, Tolkien rewalking uh, The Hobbit in his larger legendary, mm. that uh, it leaves this question that technically you could find an excuse, like even like an excuse that makes sense in the canon. Yeah. But instinctively, you're like, that would be a very big excuse. Like, that would be very, like, oh, look at that. Turgon's sword is here. So lucky, isn't it? That it, like, that unlike thousands of people who live there, it did not drown into the sea. I really wonder how. Magical character. Yeah. Um, and same, like, the way, uh, they cross the Misty Mountain. It's very vague where they cross. They just take the right path of the right mountain. But it's either that this time Cavadras didn't have a hissy fit and did not try to kill everyone, or there was another path that got destroyed between the Hobbit's travel and Lord of the Ring travel, so meaning they couldn't take it after with the Fellowship. Uh, or which was uh, because like they, they do cross the Misty Mountain based from like leaving Rivendell, right? Uh, it's they it's one near Rivendell or slightly more north. Um, yeah, yeah, they're not. Carathras is far too south. Yeah, um, so, for it. Um, so like yeah. then, then in the in the Lord of the question, Rings world, there's this question on yeah. why didn't they cross the Misty Mountain there? I mean, fair. They were aiming for like. I mean, the, the, path the question is the. That that's a question for uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, that's true. Um, but you know that this that, know. that 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 I put it in the the Hobbit being rewalked to fit the Legendarium leaves with some yeah. question that could be answered if you like deep dive into the canon and like could still be consistent, but still like you'd like eh, you had. Those entirely get like this passage get entirely mentioned in in fellowship, you know. So I think there are. I'll I'll just say I think there are answers actually. Uh, but yes, you do have to closely look at. Yeah, yeah. I, I um, don't. I don't think it's illogical. I'm not saying it entirely yeah. breaks down the logic of the rest of the legendarium or the no. rest of the legendarium breaks down the logic of the Hobbit. It's just. Um, it raises some question that uh, either are left blank, or you would have to like read in details to find like a satisfying, reasonable answer that is not. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. I think I mean I think the like from a like a Hobbit perspective, the fascinating thing for me is just how much like. Tolkien as the as the modern like 
world like the the progenitor of the modern like fantasy world building uh kind of you know style of fantasy writing and stuff there's a certain amount of like i mean he did do a lot of world building and stuff but huge portions of his mythology just kind of accidentally come into existence and he has to stick with because he published the hobbit <laughs> which is just like right because the hobbit then and when he more fully does the lord of the rings is suddenly like okay this is now the third age of the world when previously he'd been writing entirely a single collection of elf stories that becomes the first age and he's just like right it, but for everyone who reads these stories it becomes right like the hobbit is the progenitor and everything else is like the backstory of it and so it's such a strange like accident of history <laughs> that we get like you know middle earth as it exists and not just uh beleriand <laughs> um and those you know beleriand and elven home and that's you know kind of it'd be a very different world without hobbits yeah such I, a different world i feel it's even more interesting because like in the real world like things happen also a bit randomly like uh, uh, a, a continent is created a bit randomly like there's no someone not someone who controls a map and that's how the continent comes up it's like like the plague move and and everything like that and so it's it's tectonic plates just one minute um yeah um and so like it's interesting that it's the literary equivalent of that it's like oh shoot i created a world i guess that's not how i imagined it but it's how it is right now and i really i i, I cannot love that yeah I mean, there's also, there's the fact that, like, Tolkien is, like, if you listen to Tolkien talk about writing, he tells you, write, make a map first and then write, and that's not how he writes. That's Tolkien like is a discovery writer of the finest order. He writes something and then figures out what on earth he just wrote. Like, that's literally how this book starts. Right? He writes in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, and he's like, what the heck is a hobbit? <laughs> yeah. He didn't know what a hobbit was before he wrote the word hobbit. Right? Because that's the, the legend of his actually creating that word. It's just, hey, student left a blank sheet of paper on their test. I'll just put something on it. And that's what comes out. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Speaking of Tolkien um, writing things through like linguistic discovery or like wordplay, um, that was a thought I had about Gondolin actually, is I would make the argument that Gondolin doesn't exist in its like, in all of its legendary weight and Silmarillion connotations in The Hobbit. Gondolin exists because the name sounds right. Um, it's, yes. you know, we've all noticed that it's clearly kind of disconnected from the history. Um, the fact, like, Turgon isn't Turgon. 
he's just a king of days gone yeah. by. Just, you know, a king. Um, and the part that really cemented it for me is Elrond's line, where he's saying, like, you know, these are not troll make. These are old swords, very old swords of the high elves of the West, my kin. They were made in Gondolin for the Goblin Wars. And Tolkien's a poet. Tolkien writes shit sometimes just because it sounds good. And, like, they were made in Gondolin for the Goblin Wars is, like, the same vibe as their Baron buried his father's bones. Like, he's writing a beautiful sentence with alliteration and yeah. internal rhyme, and I'm completely convinced that Gondolin made its way in because the name sounds good with Goblin Wars. <laughs> Yeah, I I, I, w I wouldn't disagree, uh, but it is also just, you know, the fact like uh, in a certain level. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't stick to stuff. The fact that he changes names so often in the Silmarillion is like testament to how much he just wants like certain names, and then we'll figure out who the character is later, um, and stuff. But there's also, like, I, I feel, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but, you know, Gondolin was one of his earliest, like, yeah. creations, and I'm, you know, I'm not certain, but I bet money that there, you know, at a certain point, he just wants, you know, the fact that Tour was, like, the story he wrote in World War One, you know, he's just, like, that's one of the earliest ones he had, so just, like... Yeah, I can make a. I can make, can make a couple swords come out of that city. It's great. I just had this funny yeah. thought. It's like, you know how like we were talking about fan fiction and like some people just insert OCs that they have and they love very much and they will put them in every fan fiction. Tolkien does that, but with CD. He's like, this is my OC. It's a CD. I love it so much. Yeah. And I'm like. Yeah. He also does it with his OCs who are actual characters, like yeah, Elrond. He doesn't care. Actually, wait, yeah, because that Elrond and Gondolin would be the f would those be the first um of his elf words? No. No, Orcris and Glamdring. At, at least if you're talking about the first ones to come up in the Hobbit. Okay. Sorry, I'm, um, I, I, I was uh, just, but because all the other, like, you know, Gandalf and the dwarves' names are stolen. <laughs> just that. Yes. Right. The, those aren't original, and the Hobbit names can't exa aren't, you know, elvish, but like, what what wouldn't he have written the same way if he didn't have the fir the first stage material? I'm like, oh yeah, oh, I guess Orchrist and Elrond and Gondolin, right? <laughs> it's like he had yeah, those in I his back pocket to reference. He did definitely. So, all right, okay, going back to. Okay. Going back to the top of a short rest, um, I feel like the one thing, like one of the two really big things we should talk about in this chapter 
is just the elves. Um, and I don't know, my first question is, I guess, for Eloise, because uh, you're reading The Hobbit after having read The Lord of the Rings and The Solian, which is fuck me. Um, and specifically for that reason, I want to ask you uh, what you thought of the Rivendell elves. And if they seemed off at all. Or if this was just like, yeah, seems like the same elves as the Lord of the Rings in the film earlier. No, no, to answer your second question, no, they're not the same elves at all. <laughs> um, they, they're very much like um, folklore elves, like very uh, fae-like and very... Um, what is your economy kind of creatures? <laughs> uh, how do you survive and have feast all the time? We don't know, but apparently you do. Um, and like Elrond is a bit like Hammer, uh, I'll say, and because he's not a scholarly type, so he resembles a little bit more his characters uh, from the Lord of the Ring, uh, but the elf singing and like kind of taunting the dwarf and like singing those like Tom Bombadilish songs. Um, it's it's uh, it's not really the same elves and has suddenly are like ah, our time in Middle Earth has come to an end, and the war is everywhere. This is so sad. Let's all go. Uh, and who still sing beautiful songs, but like melancholic and like, and considering how long elves live, I'm pretty sure most of those elves that we see here supposedly <laughs> have at least seen the second age and is shittery. And like for them, 60 years is not a big deal. So like they probably wouldn't have a character change that drastic just because suddenly the wandering has been found. I think it, it, you know, and that's why they feel off. It's because um, it's not like he's describing children elves who have maybe less worry about the world because Rivendell at this time is really protected and probably doesn't have much to worry about. No, it's adults. And that's really off. Considering when again you put it back into the world considering how the world is around you know there's still trolls around like like the two friends that gandalf met in the previous chapter who told him yes yeah, there's trolls you might want to like be careful and like their friends are singing in the next the next city over you know so it's like interesting um because they really like fairy tale elves so like it makes sense for the hobbit being a child story, being a bedtime story uh, for Tolkien's children, but it doesn't make much sense in Middle Earth, 60 years before the end of the Third Age. Yeah, the, um, the Chaos Gremlin part of me absolutely delights in the idea that all of this is 100% true all of the time and like Glorfindel, regal lord of Gondolin in his like old age 
spends his retirement like pulling on Thorin Oakenshield's beard and singing like stupid songs. Um, but yeah, Jordan, would you like to, I don't know, add anything about like the characterization of the Rivendell elves before you meet Elrond? Yeah, <laughs> it's just kind of hard because it's like, as I said, with like the work, um, the you know the. <laughs> I think there's a, it, partially it might actually be the narrator, um, for the most part, the just the kind of tone, but like yeah, I you know when I'm in Hobbit, I'm in Hobbit world. <laughs> And Hobbit world is not always the same as Lord of the Rings, and it's, you know, like, oh yeah, Glorfindel and, you know, all these other, you know, all the other, you know, the elves that are, you know, I don't know, teasing Bilbo in the, uh, in the, uh, in the Hall of Fire, right, when he's, like, singing them, uh, Arundel was a mariner, and trying to get them to guess, you know, what part did Strider... <laughs> You know? <laughs> right. And I mean, that, that you can kind I can kind of, like, understand the kind of bridge that Tolkien is writing there. Um, and I, but I also think it's, I mean, probably actually the harder thing for me is not so much stripping, or like, connecting Lord of the Rings book and The Hobbit. It's uh, because my brain usually has uh, other adaptations. <laughs> Right. So it's like, okay, connect this to Hugo Weaving. <laughs> and <laughs> Yes. I mean, at least in at least in the Hobbit movie, Hugo Weaving has at least got a smile on his face as opposed to Lord of the Rings, Hugo Weaving. <laughs> but even trying to think of like lo like the Lori Lothlorian elves, like, do they sing like this? Um and it's like I don't know. The, those movies are so preoccupied with like war and also the, a kind of somber tone that like this is puts into I, I like I don't think it's I don't think I think maybe we should think more about it giving elves a certain you know not so much flippancy but a kind of jovial presence and not just like oh. You know, the elves are sailing away and are very sad because <laughs> that's a yeah. very easy shortcut that we, we always do. And I mean, adaptations are short and that's, you know, when you're shortening them, you don't keep tra-la-la-lolly, you keep the, you know, they're leaving Middle Earth and sailing far away because that's the important part of <laughs> the Lord of the Rings elves. But it's, you know, you can have multitudes, elves contain multitudes and some of that <laughs> multitude is tra-la-la-lolly here down in the valley, ha-ha. <laughs> I, I have some things that can satisfy you multitudinal elves with the chaotic gremlin of Sophia. So you see those two friends Gandalf met who warned him about the trolls. He was like, oh, thank you for me, telling me about trolls. Let me telling, tell you about another type of trolling. So when the dwarves arrive, this is what you're going to do with all of your friends. Please and thank you. And then he went back because from the first chapter, Gandalf is absolutely the shit disturber that would do this kind of thing and pull this kind of prank and have the elves be in. Well, on so the Sarah joke. actually. Oh, sorry. Sorry. 
go ahead i'm done no sorry i was just leggy so i thought you finished oh yeah um, that's actually strongly related to Sarah's question, which is, is this an early installment issue, a break in canon, or do you think the elves are messing with the dwarves and Bilbo on purpose? All three? <laughs> All of them at once, I suppose. I mean, it's funny because like, if you look at it from like a reader perspective who sees this work as the work of Tolkien, and thus see that the continuity is like the continuity or the like lack of the thereof or like the questionable continuity comes from his writing timeline and writing context um it makes sense right and you could just like discard it at that but then you can have like a bit of chaotic gremlin attitude of being like yeah but imagine the hobbits reading the red book they must be hella confused because that's the same elves in in their book like for the readers in middle earth who are reading this book that bilbo frodo and sam compiled together this this raises questions so yeah like they might interpret it as like oh yeah at this moment Gandalf probably told them to pull a prank on the dwarves or, oh, the elves actually can be really funny sometimes. And that's, that's, that there's more than only the melancholy of uh, the, 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 the last chapters uh, to them. And they don't know. They have literally no idea because both the elves and Gandalf at this time are gone. And no one can corroborate either version. And it's glorious. And I love it. I would actually like to make a serious thematic argument linking the Trollala Lally elves to like the Athrobeth Finrod uh, Andreth elves of High Silmarillion. Okay, so, which I can't believe I'm doing, but. Here yeah. I am, and I'm going to argue that there is, in fact, an important linking quality of philosophical importance. And that quality is that of being in the moment, being intensely grounded in place while the world sort of moves around you and is, like, always looking for something more. So in the debate between Finrod and Andreth in Morgoth's Ring, which is post-Silmarillion Silmarillion writing and is also an incredibly serious philosophical piece of literature about death. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the things, one of the arguments that's being made in that between Finrod, who's an elf king, and Andreth, who's a human woman, um, is Finrod is ar like arguing that... Um, like Arda, the world that they're in now is a fallen world. It's Arda marred. It has the influence of evil. But at the end of time, the world will end and there will be another world like Arda remade, um, which is essentially a paradise. Um, heaven vibes. So, uh, 
the point with making this distinction between the world that exists now and a theoretical future world is Finrod is making the argument that elves are of this world. Elves are fundamentally of Arda. They don't, like, they don't die permanently. Like, their bodies keep being remade, but that's because their lifespan is tied to the lifespan of the world as it is now. Whereas humans die and are able to pass, like, beyond the circles of the world and are not bound to its fate in the same way that elves are. And when he's talking about this, he cites as proof the fact that humans always seem to be yearning for something more. So they go through the world and they see like a flower and instead of being endlessly fascinated with this flower as it exists in the here and now, the way elves are, humans might like intrinsically compare it to something that they're not even sure that they're comparing it to. So like humans have this urge for something more or something better and they're not even sure what they're comparing it to it like it's like they have a subconscious ideal world in their heads and they're constantly like measuring this one up to that and finding it false like fall short and so that gets into like human qualities of like ambition and like trying to make the world better and having difficulty being satisfied with things exactly as they exist and needing to like you know, move forward and have that, you know, sense that there's some, basically just that sense that there's something beyond the world as they know it. And elves don't have that at all. Um, and so that is, believe it or not, uh, the point I would like to make about the Tralalalali elves is that one of their main points of characterization is that they are just fundamentally a Rivendell thing. Like, they're almost like a force of nature in this valley. They're not differentiated. They don't have individual names. They don't have individual personalities. They're pretty much completely different from Elrond, who is his own person and is only partly elf, you know? Um, And everything that they sing about is, like, what's happening right now. Like, you know, wood is burning, bread is baking, the valley is jolly, like here are the stars, why don't you stay and sing with us? They don't seem to think beyond the bounds of the valley and in fact seem baffled by, like, baffled and intrigued by the fact that the dwarves and Thorin are, like, on a journey. Like, they're constantly toying with them and asking, like, where are you going? Um, Are you going to stay? Like, are you going to run away? Um, To fly would be folly, to stay would be jolly. So, um, yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, definitely I think the a elves certain are like that. <laughs> there's definitely a very certain like presentness. Um, but I also think that even in this chapter, at least if you're attentive, you should be considering that the elves have a very wide spectrum to them, right? Because we get both tralalalali, right? Them singing, you know, don't you dip your beard in the foam father, the Thorin. Um as well as Elrond saying, these swords were made by my kin in Gondolin of old, right? For the Goblin Wars. So it's like, these are, you know, these are not a people unaccustomed to war and battle and high arts of, like, Smithcraft. That's a good point. Right? That so actually, it's... That actually starts to answer Sarah's question, which is like, um... Oh, gosh. Which is, are there some clues that the elves are more than they seem? 
I think there are. Um, but it's also, I think, you know, I mean, tone can, you know, you know, this skews a bit more cheerful and, you know, child like in the way it does its rhyme, you know, rhyming and stuff. But I don't, you know, trying to remember, uh, like, you know, when Frodo meets like Gildor and Glorian, um, in, uh, in Woodall in Fellowship very, very quickly in that book as he begins his journey out of the Shire. And it's like, there's, there's a lightness and airiness and maybe, yeah. Like, I guess maybe in Lord of the Rings, you get a bit more sense of the elves as like the ambassadors of the past, right? Of ages long past. And you get that a bit with Elrond here. Um, but I also think it's good, the kind of the more present, the presentness and not a a kind of future or, you know, if humanity is very future-oriented kind of by design, elves are the present and looking past in the, in the past, um, which um, since I've started reading uh, The Nature of Middle-Earth is a very, you know, something Tolkien picks up um, when he goes back to that too is like, how, how does this work? And, you know, what, what does that mean? Because he, he makes a point there that he um or he you know he decides that like elves when they're young um are like they are more physical they have as much or more um pleasure like enjoy the pleasures of the body and of arts like even as much or more than humans um but but because they also kind of that gets absorbed into their spirits as they age like that's uh you know, they start off that way, but they somehow become less of that, but it doesn't, it's not a, he doesn't make the point that it is a, like, a degrading or anything, it's just that's how elves are. You do, you do all this stuff, and then you remember it later. <laughs> and so I think, you know, not that they had all those ideas completely worked out when he's writing this, but I think this is the, these are the kind of dichotomies of, like, what it means to be elvish that he would later, like, write out that kind of essay and i think it's just it should be important to be like you know you read the silmarillion and you find it dry and biblical and you're like you know think think of the elzadoriath like singing around like these you know these guys uh you know in in a sense of like you know, if you think of the Elven King not as like Thranduil, but like he's re he recycles uh, um, uh, Thingle, basically, and it's like, yeah, think of Silmarillion elves getting drunk on their own wine. Uh, that's I think you know, give us the idea that Tolkien maybe thought far more. Or you know, far more complexly about his own creations than sometimes we are just like, no, <laughs> elves are you know serious unless they're like Legolas or something, you know. I feel like Legolas is so funny. People who think Legolas is serious are incorrect. <laughs> I mean, even in the adaptation movie, he's like so confused half of the time. Um, but yeah, like. 
I feel like I still have the feel that this is complexity given to self is partially accidental due to the writing process. Like, um, I think Tolkien intended the Hobbit elves to be more like the folklore elves that are like uh, mm -hmm. jolly and like uh, more like a bit more like spirits of nature i feel like I'm, i mean i'm very i'm very unknown i don't know much about how folklore elves are but like that's why i imagine them a little bit um and and he imagined lord of the ring and Silmarillion elves to be more like marred by the pain they go through right and the like horror of the wall but uh that and, and but I think that when he reconciled the Hobbit or tried to reconcile the Hobbit with his larger legendarium, it ended up he probably started thinking about it at this point, and that's when he started to like uh, develop this uh, multi multi aspected elves of like yeah. They yeah. go to war and they are sad, but they also they also fun and sing the silly songs, and it's it's also part of like who they are, and so like it's a bit like a happy accident of his writing, uh, for his elf elvish culture development. I don't think he had it all crafted from the beginning, um, but he rolled with it and he 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 took it in stride. Um, and at the same time, I really like the argument that Sophia made um, about the like being in the present. Because one of the things about the elves we see in the Hobbits, except for Elrond, we don't know how old they are. As far as we know, they could be younger elves. They could be they could actually be younger elves, or they could be like all the elves who are celebrating something, or they could just be in a nice time of the year and there's not a lot of troubles and it's like they don't have a big evil lord that is looming over their heads because as far as I know, it, he's not there yet. Um, so, like, that's also a reading I really like. And the fact that Elrond is a bit more sober in a way like somber already like that compared to the elves who are like singing silly songs like he's not like super super like depressed uh in the hobbits either but like he's a bit more like serious we'll say um i think is probably just the fact that he's the leader of those people so even if everything is going roughly fine he still has to like pay attention to what could be going not fine so he already has more responsibility and less time to just sing silly song in the valley so yeah i guess one note i'm just thinking about now is how especially this chapter chapter three you know short as it is is also kind of like the Hobbit in general has a very, right, it, it it kind of starts in a very 
I don't know if silly is the right word, but a very kind of like a much more kind of silly children's adventure and gets more serious as it goes along and especially right near the end when it just kind of you know flips into okay uh dragon's dead and suddenly serious time <laughs> um spoilers i guess sorry um i mean i know the but story, i feel like i just haven't read the book yeah but like right like this is a maybe a, a slight tonal shift. Like, the elves singing is kind of in a similar mood to how, right, uh, Cockney Trolls uh, works and thinking about, you know, hobbits going on adventures and then just complaining about um, warm, you know, lack of warm beds and hot meals. And it's like, after, after this, we are going to be getting a lot more, um, you know, we're going to be suddenly thrown into large caverns filled with you know goblins who want to torture them <laughs> and it's like even that is fun in a way but there's a certain amount of like i i do find it funny that it was like oh one adventure with trolls and we suddenly needed rest right it's like that's it's a very funny thing to think especially with how much more you know how many more adventures they have before they get like to lake town which is where they could like have another respite. Um but uh the you know it it is Rivendell is both like, you know, it is homely. It is like it feels far more like the Shire, but it's also not. There is there is a certain sense of otherness that is communicated by the whole like tralalali. It's like they might be elves might be good people but they aren't normal people <laughs> um it is still weird and then elrond and you know is far more serious and like oh this is right we are gonna f we are getting into more adventure and less like <laughs> right if if the first if the first third if the first few chapters are almost cartoony <laughs> we're gonna be moving away from Looney Tunes into, uh, you know, serious, a bit more serious dramatic fare. <laughs> right. Looney Tunes to, like, Disney uh, animated features tone-wise. Like, there's a slight shift there. It might not be that strong, but it is. There is a shift coming. <laughs> and there's is kind of right. We are on the edge of the wild, you know, now as soon as you leave Rivendell. It's like there is something different going on. Um, I mean, congratulations for nailing like three of Sarah's notes in one, <laughs> You might think I've been in this club a long time. I don't know. <laughs> like we've got this is the true wild now that they're beyond the last homely house. Uh, we've got um, Jane Chance identifies a back and forth between feasting and battling as an important part of children's literature, and this is a feasting segment. It's a sorely needed rest. Bilbo has just realized how far off their goal is, and there are hard times behind, trolls and ahead, misty mountains. Um, yeah. Uh, before we move on completely from the elves, though, uh, Sarah wants us to note that um, 
the first time we meet them is explicitly under starlight. Hmm, it smells like elves, thought Bilbo, and he looked up at the stars. They were burning bright and blue. Just then there came a burst of song like laughter in the trees. Also just, it smells like elves is very funny. It's <laughs> so funny. It smells like elves is like tied for the funniest thing in this chapter with like the elves calling Thorin daddy. I mean father. Sorry. Freudian slip. <laughs> I mean it's about as close as Tolkien would never use the word daddy, but if you if you translate it if you translate it to uh from, you know, 1930s English speech <laughs> to modern, you could make an argument. And then, daddy. Eloise is so mad at me right now. Okay, I think like Tolkien might use the word daddy in his uh, work, but like if it made sense in the context, but he probably would not use it in the sense that we are all thinking of, that is heavily influenced by like At least for me, that has been sullied by uh, Tumblr and all the smut I've read on fanfics. Um, <laughs> I think that... No, even... that's exactly what I'm going for. No, I know. I know you're going for that. <laughs> I, I'm arguing that he might not have. That's just what I'm saying. Mm. Oh, I'm not saying Tolkien <laughs> would have. I'm saying but there is a certain... <laughs> oh, I'm all on board with you. Um, I'm, I'm just saying uh, that at this moment in his tomb, he might be rolling a little bit. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I think we should probably talk a little bit about Elrond. Um, Sarah's note about Elrond is really funny. It's just, I literally have a note that says, read the passage. Look, he's my favorite. Don't know if that will help you, but it's probably the kind of summer one. And I'm like, thanks. So helpful. But is this where, is this where we bring up else? the fact that that is not the original description of Elrond? Sure. Please elaborate. Actually, I want to read the description first, and then I want you Go to ahead. elaborate. Go ahead. So, all right. The description we've got in this version is, The master of the house was an elf friend, one of those people whose fathers came into the strange stories before the beginning of history, the wars of the evil goblins and the elves and the first men in the north. In those days of the tale, there were still some people who had both elves and heroes of the north for their ancestors, and Elrond the master of the house was their chief. He was as noble and as fair in face as an elf lord, as strong as a warrior, as wise as a wizard, as venerable as a king of dwarves, and as kind as summer. He comes into many tales, but his part in the story of Bilbo's great adventure is only a small one, though important, as you will see if we ever get to the end of it. <laughs> yes, Tolkien, get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> so meta. Yes, get on with it. Yes, get on with it. Okay, See, this is why we need a The Princess Bride movie-style adaptation of The Hobbit. Uh, um, that's our next movie project in the club. Um, <laughs> well, you can... Sophia, you can, you can be like the little boy in his bed uh, just waiting for the story. You won't have a lot to do. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> this isn't a kissing book, is it? Nope, definitely not a kissing book. <laughs> uh. Carefully omits all of the parts that are like very gay. Yeah. Anyway, well, I guess we'll just we'll um, just Jordan, cut out the character of just cut out the portions with Toriel in it. <laughs> oh, oh man! What you have to do is like to to make a double adaptation. It's like you adapt it like according to the Princess Bride, and then in the book it's the grandma reading it, and in the book there's notes on like good fanfiction. It's like oh yeah no um so yes uh no kissing you said. Sad. This fanfic is so good. Anyway, so <laughs> and the whole book no, is like, like that. <laughs> and when like the and if there's a shot on the book, you see like ticks everywhere. I'm like, and there's a kiss. Oh no, and there's no. a kiss. And there's a kiss. See fanfic. Da, da, da. See author. Da, da, da. No. See Tumblr post. Da, da, da. Oh. oh my god, <laughs> the worst thing of the internet age. Okay. Um anyway, uh, what were you what were you saying about oh. the um way the description of Elrond changed? It's a very small change, but in the original 1938 Hobbit, the the uh, phrase kind of summer was different. It was kind of Christmas originally. Oh. Yes. He changed yeah, I can he changed see why that had to go. Yeah, one one of the yeah one of the few changes, but I know that's uh, you can find that in the uh, the annotated Hobbit or you know through other people talking about it. But cool. yes, kind is Christmas, which has a similar but not quite the same flavor as kind of summer. Mm-hmm. There's a certain I don't know jolliness. I don't know. Also, that's true. Yes, go read the Father Christmas letters or something. (laughs) If you want. Uh, I was saying, saying, sorry for interrupting. Uh, I was saying that uh, with us mentioning how it reads a little bit like a a D&D campaign at some points, where they had really good roles, having Aaron described as a warrior, a wizard, and all of that, (laughs) it's a bit like multi-classing, because... That's a bit how it feels. Like if you read it from like a D and D perspective, obviously. Yeah. It's yeah. fine. He's just multi-class. He's just a multi-class fighter, wizard, cleric, druid. I mean, it's it makes sense. Normal. He's been a he's been he's alive a, a long time. And he's an half a half elf. We have everything. It's fine. Also, one of those instances which definitely makes the Hobbit sound like there are wizard is just a profession. It's not a specific class of five dudes. That's fair. Um, that's a that's a Corey Olson uh, suggestion, which I which makes far more sense. It's like, oh yes, in, in the Hobbit, the wizards are just like you know, Gandalf is a wizard. As just he's a random dude who is also a wizard. He's not, you know. The f- the five angelic Istari who <laughs> come up from over the sea. Yeah. Well, I feel like there's more than one way in which The Hobbit has a similar feel to Roverandom, and I feel like yeah. wizards in The Hobbit feel more like wizards in Roverandom. Uh, yeah, in a certain way, there's a certain amount of where The Hobbit almost fits more with Roverandom and Farmer Giles of Ham. 
There's uh, so many similarities to Farm and Trials of Ham. Like, oh actually, God. yeah, that, that, that would be a very good comparison. But just, yeah. I mean, the fact that hobbits are a very English English people thrust into weird situations. Yeah, like English agrarian. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. There was... I, I don't know why it took me so long to realize that, but I think I was reading... I think I was reading... Uh, Oh, uh, Tolkien author of the century by Tom Shippey and just I think it was from him and it was like it's like oh man you know the hobbits turn like his right Tolkien's like fairy stories into portal fantasy right yeah <laughs> it's just that instead of having just like some random English farmer he just creates yeah a surrogate <laughs> With yeah, hobbits. he just creates like these people who are living under a metaphorical rock and don't know anything. <laughs> a metaphor metaphorical rock created by uh, the rangers, <laughs> just like protecting yeah, them from all their dangers. Yeah, but also like, but also the rock just happens to be like the English countryside. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it was like, I don't know why that should be mind blowing, but it's also one of those like, oh, when you've read. When these stories have, are some of the, like, you know, earlier stories you remember being read to you, <laughs> um, yeah. it's just, that's just the Lord of the Rings. That's just how it works. <laughs> but it's also, like, it's also a very, like, you know, Portal Fantasy is very good at introductions. So the fact that we are introduced to all this stuff via Bilbo... And then Frodo yeah. is, and, you know, the rest of them is incredibly good. And in fact, I mean, I think Tolkien was always trying to do that because the Book of Lost Tales, he has a human go there. As yeah, from the Book the very of Lost beginning. Tales is like even more portal fantasy. Yeah, he just somehow, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, back to The Hobbit. I have a really yeah, good question. Yeah. I have a really dumb question, which is like not Sarah's, because Sarah's questions are better than mine. So just to make that clear, my question is should Gandalf have been able to like read the runes and recognize Orcrist and Glamdring? Like, is it weird that Elrond knows a bunch of stuff Gandalf doesn't? Uh, I mean, reading the elf runes. Or at least reading runes, I assume Gandalf could have at least figured out the name of the sort. Um, in a like Lord of the Rings perspective, um, I think like there's a certain amount of uh, every, all of the wise have their specialities, right? Gandalf's is not ancient lore of Gondolin. His is hobbits and the weird, you know people's you know in Ariador and stuff like it's yeah he knows far more about pipeweed than he does about like which elvish kings were which um you know that's elrond's thing Sour sourman's thing is you know ring lore and sauron's mischief uh so and radagast is birds and beasts so it's like you know Gand gandalf has a different degree <laughs> he's uh they're different faculty. They're not just wizards are not omnicompetent, omniscient people. 
Yeah, I think it's it, yes. it kind of like uh, is confirmed when uh, in it's not really seen in the movies and the adaptation of the movies because it's a very like boring plot and it's slightly mentioned in the extended edition. But, um, Gandalf needs to do research to know to realize that the ring that people has is the one ring, and it takes him a couple of months, I think, or at least weeks. Like he's not like, oh, that's uh, the one ring. I know what it reads, and like. <laughs> I, it's. I mean, I think his knowledge of the ring comes from the research he does. Like even when he reads the Elven rune on the ring, it's because he so like at least the movie version he saw a copy in the archives, remembered it. In the in the worst case, he he didn't know prior to that, and he remembered it, and then he brought it to 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 Frodo and was like, hey. So this ring, like it's just a nice heirloom and stuff, but uh, I have bad news. Um, but yeah, it makes sense that he wouldn't necessarily know things that are not his specialty. Uh, in the movie, it's months. In the book, it's decades. Yeah. Just saying. It's, I, I have 60 years in my head and I'm like, I don't think that's quite correct. Uh, no, but it's 30, it's, I think no. it's 20 years because I think it gets Frodo from about 30 to about 50. Yes, yes, or is it 16? It might be 16. I think it's he, he spent three yeah. at the at Bilbo's birthday, and then he's like 50, 51 when he sleeps. Yeah, 16. So okay, that, that number's in my head. Okay. Anyways, yes. <laughs> decades. <laughs> I mean, yeah, don't let him go for a little bit of that, but yes, he's... Um, that's fair. Yes. But that's why, like, Saruman was the guy who went in for ring lore. If you had any questions about rings, he should have gone to Saruman. <laughs> for all the good that would have done. <laughs> um... Well, uh, should we talk about Overhill and Underhill now? Chapter four? Sure. Yes. Um, okay, so we already kind of touched on the fact that after Rivendell, they're like fully into the wild. Um, just, apparently... You know, just just oh, some yeah. random giants throwing rocks around. You know, things you just find on the roads. Yeah. I mean, okay, <laughs> this is gonna be really funny. After, uh, so according to Sarah's notes, um, and apparently the annotated Hobbit, uh, the climb into the Misty Mountains and the Thunder Battle are based on a walking tour that Tolkien took in 1911. I assume this is of the Alps because those are mountains Tolkien visited and liked. So it's interesting because we've talked about how the landscapes are not necessarily as specific as in. Lord of the Rings, but this at least is based on something highly specific. I assume Tolkien didn't literally see um, giants throwing rocks at each other, but that's not made clear to me. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't know. Is there anything either of you wanted to add about, I guess, the first part of this chapter before we get to goblins? 
I may be wrong because I have a fuzzy memory, uh, but it feels that it's uh, one of the first time we focusing on the on dwarfs who are not Thorin when we mentioned how Kili and Philly are like the youngest and have sharp eyes and like this is the youngest by 50 years um, and they have a specific role uh, of usually being scouts in the party um, and I don't know I just noticed that uh, it's it's small but I don't think that all the dwarves had like much more. Uh, there's a mention in the previous chapters of uh, Thing Gloin being the one good with the fires, but that's basically all. Most of the time when a dwarf is mentioned by name, it's Thorin and, and the description and the development on what what happens is on Thorin. yeah definitely I was honestly like I was reading that part where it just glosses over um they talked and talked and forgot about the storm and discussed what each would do with his share of the treasure when they got it and that was really interesting because presumably that would be a moment when you learned things about the dwarves as individuals but this narrative is not interested in telling you about it no no they're not in <laughs> fact tolkien actively uh decreased the the amount of speaking dwarves between draft between his drafts and the and the final published version oh my god do you know why i think it was mostly to um i think it was to just give character to a few dwarves instead of just having random dwarves randomly speaking <laughs> yeah. every time <laughs> yeah right so right cuz you get uh yeah cuz like is it glowing glowing gets is weird cuz he has only one line and that's the grosser line i believe uh in that but most of them are like um yeah like thorin and oh I, for, I forget which ones are the speaking ones but yeah he consolidates quite a bit and i think it's mostly because they don't speak and it was almost more of a it's better if i don't care like it's a i mean this story is not about the character of the dwarves for the most part they are mostly a kind of representative bunch um but it's mm -hmm. I think it's a kind of uh if you if you right he like it's not that he made more lines or less lines he just gave he just said a different dwarf wrote it or said it um and that's uh, yeah i th attributed I think, them like with purpose rather than randomly yeah yeah and i think i think in a way that's almost a smarter decision 
is just so that you can be like, oh, okay, this is, you know, we have a lot more about this dwarf and then we can kind of just guess. But, you know, <laughs> that is something which, like, works decently well in a book, especially with this narrative where we don't get a lot. And we can just kind of, if you want that information, you can fill it in, but doesn't quite work as well if you try to adapt it, which is how you yeah. get, right? So you either have to, you either do it like the book says, and you just have a bunch of nearly identical dwarves, like the Rankin Bass Hobbit, <laughs> right? Or you have to go completely the other direction. And you do a Peter Jackson where you're like, okay, we need to fill out all these blank character sheets. Mm -hmm. um, so you get, you know, okay, this one is the motherly one. This one is the young one. This, these are the two young hot ones. Uh, and like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, it, those are, but those are both like things you have to consider when you see 13 people on screen. You can't just be like, Okay, so are these going to yeah. be basically 13 mis like interchangeable colors? <laughs> or are these going to be... Uh, right? Because in The Hobbit, the most difference you get between like Bomber being the fat one and Thorin being the old kingly one is the color of their cloak and the instrument they play. <laughs> Which is also... Yeah, are they lugged cellos across <laughs> uh, Middle Earth? <laughs> Which is a very funny thing to think about <laughs> after that first chapter. It's like, yes. Oh, yeah. Does, does Thorne have a full-sized harp on his back? Or in a pony? Yeah, I mean, that's what all the best elves did. Fingen wouldn't be caught dead in the middle of climbing a precipitous mountain without his harp. So whatever respectable bard or maybe does. maybe maybe some of the ponies they lost uh, had had those in instruments. Yeah, that's uh. the thing. Is that even if they are lugging those across Middle Earth, they lost them here. <laughs> yeah, or or that one that they lost before the troll shaws. And the, the narrator just tells us it's mostly food because <laughs> it's too embarrassing to say. Oh yeah, we lost a. Uh, uh, three clarinets, a viola, a harp, and a drum. <laughs> oh, my God, oh so and also, and also two bags of food. Well, the food is the important stuff, so <laughs> say the food. That would be so funny. I mean, on the day-to-day -day basis, yes, the food is the most important. Um... Actually, just seeing one pony, like, climbing a mountain, like, with a hilariously like big pile of musical instruments just like topple off the side just whoops uh, sorry guys no music tonight we'll be doing everything acapella from here on out um okay yeah the question like what to do with the dwarves is definitely one um, that I want to carry over to like every single Tolkien and adaptation secondary yeah. book study. Yeah. Um, for now, can we talk about what the goblins are like? Yes. All right. So, how are the goblins characterized? With lots of fun, violent wordplay. <laughs> Hmm, that's interesting. What do you, just, like, what, yeah, what do you I mean? I was thinking specifically of their song, uh, 
you know, where you have all this evocative, um, a lot of them are almost automatopoeias, um, yes. or similar words that are like evocative and are like, they're action verbs, but they're also, yeah. they're misplaced or at least there's no context, right? So there's, and in, in a certain way, it's almost like, the way Tolkien in this book, especially so far has done, like, he has very violent things, but juxtaposes them with kind of humorous or very child-friendly anecdotes. So in the first chapter, right, you get the talk about uh, the gob uh, the dwarves making fabulous toys. And then Tolkien, you know, a sense later is like, and that's probably what brought the dragon, <laughs> right? Almost implying that the dwarves making fabulous toys is what Smug is chiefly interested in, right? But it's like, right, he doesn't shy away from terrible things or dangerous or scary things, but he does do them in funny ways. And having all this, like, torturous imagery, but completely, decon you know, um, decontextualized and in a fun rhyme scheme is, like, you get, you get that they are violent, and um stuff but they're at, but the actual torture that they're going through is like being pinched a lot um you know kind of amusingly but also it's just you know there's a kind of there's a fun in the way that they uh you know yeah the way he you know whip and smack and crack and all this you know all the all those fun words get like just rhymed into that song and then he can like say that like all the you know dangerous war machinery was built by the goblins but there's a certain there's a there's a fun cheerful pleasure in the way they're described but in a way that also is like hints at far darker undertones um you know i feel it's what makes it very much a children's book like fairy tale like because that's particularly the rewritten fairy tale like uh that's how they're written it's like, like they don't outright say uh i don't know like this lady gets raped or this one gets ripped apart but uh they imply it heavily and when they have to say it word for word, they're gonna like make it like make a joke after that or like listen like make it in a tone that children can deal with and um even like when you think of like children rhymes like traditional like little songs uh they are talking about horrible things it's just like you can't tell this horrible thing is like straight on and like deliver them to kids and be like here's a trauma we went through or here's a trauma that uh generation prior people went through you sing about it you make funny rhymes about it but at the same time it hollows to kind of like pass on something because when you grow up and you really listen to those songs, you're like, wait a minute. I don't remember that happening or like that being mentioned in the song, but 
now that I'm paying attention to what the song is saying rather than how the sound song sounds, now I get it, you know? And I think that's very similar to, to, ah, and like, and like the similarity I see is this idea of there are some parts children will like understand, but not like, but the form will distract from the, from the, the content a little bit. And mm -hmm. then when you get older, you act, you take the content in its entirety, including the form and you're like, oh, the form of the text was here to distract us from the content of it. That's what I'm getting at. Sorry, I was a bit trying I think that's it. like, no, it makes sense. I think that's doubly true for the song too. Like the song is, as Jordan pointed out, really onomatopoeic. Like it's so intensely about the way things sound that the content is very much secondary. Yeah. I mean, I think that like that last, uh, that last pair, like the last stanza of that song, like there's, there's a lot being hidden in subtext and like quick wordplay. Swish, smack, whip, crack, batter and beat, yammer and bleat, work, work, nor dare to shirk while goblins quaff and goblins laugh round and round, far underground, below my lad. Like they're literally like, if you like looking at it now, I'm like, oh man, they are describing like slaves being worked in mines while their goblin overlords drink and laugh at them and you know beat them with whips and it's like but that's in the middle of a song you don't think about that and if you're being a child read this you like you probably don't quite get that i was also just yeah, like it reading tells you oh sorry Oh, no, oh, i was just gonna make a mention i was reading this rest of the paragraph and i don't know if it's particularly childish but there's a lot of fun with um lists Tolkien likes lists in this book which is quite fun and all but also like repetition um there are baggages and packages lying broken open and being rubbished by goblins and smelt by goblins and fingered <laughs> by goblins and crawled over by goblins like there's a very it's a very fun way to describe that um I think I actually just like you know it's a different different style of wordplay, but I think he's having a lot of fun with that kind of that type. And then, but also, yeah, you know, you get to like, oh, you know, for goblins, eat horses and ponies and donkeys and other much more dreadful things. This is a very funny way to like imply horror. That's also not quite so horrifying or traumatizing. Unless I guess you're super, super into horses, in which case it might be very traumatizing. I was a horse girl as a kid. <laughs> I would have been... I was probably very disturbed. <laughs> um, that kind of begs a follow-up question, which is like, you know, the goblins are... The goblins just have so many songs that like absolutely slap, and um, there there's that fun aspect to them, and there's also kind of something similar to that with the trolls. So like, does the fact that evil is fun and funny make it seem less evil? Hmm. 
it makes it less threatening. Yeah. It's it's like it's it's the same way we're talking about like the form of the song, the extract from the content of it. The fact that like the goblins are singing uh and mocking and like they seem to be how to say that? Um underestimating the dwarf a little bit by singing in their face, which makes sense. They are an entire city against 14 people, like 15, sorry. Gandalf is still here. Uh, wait, no, Gandalf is not here. So we get the Gandalf has slipped, slipped away. <laughs> yeah, so like, so they're an entire city against 14 people who are s some of them smaller than them. So it makes sense to have this sense of superiority but at the same time, by making them a bit ridiculous, a bit funny, it it, it kind of tells a, um, the reader, uh, see, like, like, the the, like the troll be before, they were a bit ridiculous, they were a bit funny, and uh, even if it was a close call, the dwarves got it, got away, and it worked, and I think that's a a reminder of that it's like hey the dwarves can handle uh enemies that are a bit ridiculous and a bit funny and like there's also this reminder of the previous encounter with evil thing which is gandalf is not here once again uh, gandalf is slipped away has slipped away once again um and those i think are like sort of hints for the readers to foreshadow they're gonna be fine. The hop the, the ponies are not. One round before the troll and now they're all gonna get get eaten by the goblins. But the the humanoid characters, the humanoid uh, uh, figures are gonna like get 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 away fine. Because it's the same setup as the previous encounter. But it doesn't make it less evil. Just makes it a bit less threatening, I would say. I just realized that there's also a parallel between the goblins and the elves. Like, <laughs> this is two chapters in a row that the dwarves have had people they don't like singing mocking songs at them and laughing at them while they pass through their territory. I mean... And obviously... There's obviously like this is a lot worse because they're like hurting them, whereas like the worst the elves did was like fat shame Bilbo. But <laughs> I mean, but there's also, I mean, almost a slight similarity in the type of song, right? What, what's mm -hmm. right? Tra la la la, you're down in the valley, haha, -ha, versus ho ho, my lad. Like, is a yeah, I mean, they're not the same, but they're similar. Um, yeah, you know. In a very interesting, you know, notable way, at least. And I mean, as the weirdo who, in grade seven or eight, uh, used the goblin to uh, so goblin songs in my poetry class, uh, I am both kind of ashamed, but also like, no, Tolkien was a good poet. I just wouldn't have known as how good of that he was when I was that young. <sighs> yeah, both this and the Tralala Lally are jokes at the dwarves' expense. 
Yeah. I kind of have a question related to this parallel. Does this retroactively um, paint the elves as more dangerous than they appear? Because, like, here you have, like, when you have the elves, they sing and they are welcoming. They are still kind of welcoming because, like, they want them to sing with them. And then, like, if they say no, they mock them a little, but, like, they let them go on their way. And they end up staying there for, like, the dwarves end up staying there for, like, 14 days and have, like, a lot of information and stuff. Um, but uh, the goblins, they sing and they threaten and, like, they're still shown as dangerous, despite the fact that they managed, like, the dwarves managed to escape because they are well so there's a four city who wants to eat them uh they have weapons and stuff and so i guess my question is like with this parallel of like the goblins start off as like a bit ridiculous but still dangerous versus the elves start off as ridiculous but eventually helpful to the allies does that mean that the elf can, elves can also are implied to be as dangerous as a goblin could be to their enemies? Like, not necessarily eating them. That's not where I'm getting at. But it's like, see, you have two people singing mockingly at the dwarves. Some help them. Some wants to eat them. Um, but at the end of the day, they both seemed, at first glance, like singing people. And then there's more to them. I feel like to me that really evokes the difference between um, like evil and the perilous realm. Like I would, I feel like it really draws a sharp comparison between the elves who are perilous in that they follow weird rules that you understand and could do you harm, but like they don't, they aren't necessarily going to do that versus the goblins who are truly evil and that they don't care about anyone's rules and mm. like they are gonna hurt you no matter what um also someone rang the bell. I'm gonna go check on that please carry on have a conversation i mean i think for me part of this is not so much the uh that the that the elves are evil or you know more dangerous uh they're not evil. In fact, they, they make a point that the elves are capital G good people in, uh, I believe, in that chapter um, in A Short Rest. But I, like, I th if, if I saw anything in it, I would see kind of the part of, like, almost the nature of evil in Tolkien, right? The very, right, evil is not a, a thing of itself, but a twisting, right? It's a it's it's taking something that can be good and using it for ill purpose. And so the parallel almost works. Right. It's like it shows how much more evil the goblins are by putting them in direct comparison to who we are told are capital G good people. Mm -hmm. Though I also think like because of the fact right, if if the goblins had come before the elves, that would be a different story, right? Because if the goblins showed up before the elves, 
then we would be associating the elves with the goblins instead of the goblins with what the elves did. And so, right. So the parallel, I think, works in that we have capital G good people doing this kind of mocking thing in a jovial way. And then we get the goblins and it's like, oh, right. Here's the real, this is the dark underside when that goes bad and this is done by bad people. <laughs> uh. mm -hmm. <laughs> Unintentionally? Like, I'm sure this is unintentional, but it's like also just seems to reinforce the idea that like orcs are corrupted elves. Possibly. Um, though it's funny, I actually only recently learned of like that's a very, that was a quite late um, uh, change. In fact, I hadn't yeah. even known what the original was until very recently. But I think I knew it was a change. I didn't know that what the original was. Um, oh, I, I thought I, the I, original was just like they were inherently evil or whatever. Yes, but the th yes, they were constructs. They were like literally oh. puppets filled with malice and hate by Morgoth, and then Tolkien. Tolkien later decides um, it's far more important than Morgoth not be able to make living creatures. Right, he can't make oh. souls, and that's the important part. And then he's like, I have to come up with something else. <laughs> So he proposes the elves one, and that's, um, but he never gets a satisfactory answer, and then told, and then Christopher puts that one into the the Silmarillion, canonizing it. That's how that's okay. how that works. But it's one of those like, uh, it's for Tolkien himself. It was an un or it wasn't a satisfactorily answered question before he finished. But uh, like at this time, right when he's writing the Hobbit, he probably still has the construct idea in his head right that they were just unambiguously like evil creatures um um you know that was also makes it oh, yeah. though i i also find that interesting because i think like here like possibly because of the tone right the goblins here are far more almost like animal or like they have more personality than I would say even, or they have a certain type of personality. Um, they don't have, exactly have individuality except for the, the like the great goblin, mm -hmm. right? But you don't get that in Lord of the Rings until like the two towers, um, possibly possibly with the ones that grab Merry and Pippin, but definitely not like Shag um, uh, Shagrat. Um, up on Kirathungal, mm -hmm. right? Like that's I. That's a kind of like that's a differentiating point. So like the goblins of Moria are kind of like these goblins, right? They're just kind of evil and mean in general. Um, but I, I just because of how funny the the kind of the funniness and the humor put into the way they are described here and the great goblin is kind of almost gives them more personality right they're more they're more like i don't know like the father christmas letter goblins right they're like the where there's a whip there's a way goblins yes yes <sighs> um the yeah the idea of them being constructs like well may it's kind of either partly true partly not true in the hobbit but it does play in interesting ways off of um where it talks about, uh, you know, goblins 
Goblins are cruel, wicked, and bad-hearted. They make no beautiful things, but they make many clever ones. Um, and, you know, wheels and engines and explosions always delighted them. Um, and also not working with their own hands more than they could help. But in those days, in those wild parts, they had not advanced, as it is called, so far. So there's a couple things I wanted to point out. Like, mm-hmm. firstly, that... Uh, if they if we're thinking of them as created beings it's interesting because they're kind of they're created to be machines and so they can only make machines um sarah has this note about uh how they're making things but they're making like create they're creating things but without art so that distinction between things that are clever but they can't make things that are beautiful whereas um quote unquote properly created beings like humans and well elves and dwarves are able to like properly sub-create and make beautiful things um the attribution of the uh like basically like the like of industry to goblins i also wanted to point out because eloise and i talked about um like dwarves versus hobbits and the dwarves Mm. love of created things in a previous book study and so this kind of draws like a really really sharp line between um building things and like making things versus the idea of industry like those things are differentiated between like cleverness and beauty Yeah. On the, uh, Jordan just talks about fun, fun things about the history of the Hobbit that he's learned from other people. Um, this is the book that changed dwarves into the, the type of dwarves that we would know from like Tolkienian dwarves. This is the book that changed that. Before this, they were bad guys and they were merchants and they did not make things. The Silmarillion specifically said that they are not good craftsmen. That that huh. type of stuff. The over the misty mountains song is like the first instance of them becoming like oh they're craftsmen right they're the miners and craftsmen people, which you know is how we always like I always in the like published Silmarillion I always find it funny like you know because it's like oh the dwarves are like the crafters and the makers but then you have Feanor doing everything right. <laughs> but you have this dichotomy between elves as great craftsmen and dwarves as great craftsmen, where, you know, later fantasy writers would just be like, the dwarves are the crafty ones and the elves, like, make everything out of wood, you know, just to, like, mm-hmm. give some differentiation between them. Uh, but yeah, this is, right, before before this, right, they're more like meme, right? They're merchants and not particularly nice people, dwarves. But th- this book, yeah. right... We get them, oh, they're craftsmen in the first chapter, and by the end of the book, they're heroes, right? They're a heroic race, you know, alongside men and elves, right? They become one of the free peoples. But this this is where this is where he changed his idea of what dwarves are. So I want to counteract uh argue that they are described before as craftsmen. Uh, in the chapter of the cinder, of the cinders, um, it's mentioned uh, the spacecraft. Indeed, the cinders soon learned of them, and in the tempering of steel alone, all the all of all crafts, the dwarf were never outmatched, even by the noble. 
So I think this uh, silver, like it's not very developed, but I think they are mentioned as craftsmen and good craftsmen at that. I, I believe I'm taking this from people who don't, it's not the Silmarillion, oh. it's the early versions of the Silmarillion. Oh, I see. It's the Book of Lost That's Tales That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, okay. so he would have, right, because the Silmarillion is, a, is cobbled together with various versions that he, right, that he also did later. Oh, so you're and like, also looking was, at the chronology of Tolkien's yes. writing. Okay, I see. No, no, yes, okay. in 1938, Sorry, all the writings, at least... I'm getting this from other people because I, I have the history of Middle-earth, but I haven't gotten through all of the history of Middle-earth yet. But yes, for, for the early, when he was writing the early mythology, dwarves were allies of Morgoth and they were bad guys. And by the time, right, we get the Hobbit and suddenly they're in the Lord of the Rings as one of the free peoples, mm -hmm. right? So he had to write, there was a change there and I've heard it. I've heard it argued that this book is basically where that happens because he wants dwarves, right? But it makes sense of like, okay, I'm gonna have a party of kind of unscrupulous people going on a treasure hunt. Who am I gonna pick? So he picks dwarves because they're not particularly nice people, and it, that almost gives it a more gray moral, <laughs> you know gray morality to start with and gives good contrast to like elves and goblins because they aren't they aren't you know capital g good people or quite you know evil people they're in a middle they're in a middle ground that isn't quite oh, you know man. just yeah i have so many thoughts and like one of them is that the entirety of the hobbit exists in a more gray moral ground like yeah. it's not just the dwarves like we talked about the line earlier where it was like and all the heroes are off busy fighting one another dwarves. right yeah. which is <laughs> yeah which is something like you uh. would never get in the lord of the rings where there's like a much like there's a clear distinction drawn between good and evil but in this yeah. it's like and heroic people are just fighting each other because they have no one else to fight, you know? But it's also, um, like, the, the idea of heroism is a far more... It's almost more professional, right? You know, you could be a professional yeah, hero. Heroes for hire, like, they are... It's, the, it's about yeah. their strength. It, they're like Greek heroes. They're, like, it's about what they can do. It's not about if they are morally righteous in doing so. Um. Yeah, exactly. Like, the, the morality of heroism isn't really here yeah. and like you see that in the fact that like bilbo is a burglar like his job title is yeah. burglar but that's like a respected thing I mean, it's not even like... even the quest itself is very right because the, the quest is a mm -hmm. treasure quest is a treasure hunt it's not a reclaiming the homeland there's no like you know oh this gold was ours originally but there's kind of a you know one thief taking it from another thief ambiguity yes. to all this it, right. Whereas, if you right when you when you go back to it as like the quest for Erebor, um, that Tolkien like tried to do, or that like the Peter Jackson movies reframe, like try to do the reframing of, right? There's a far more like we are reclaiming our homeland, which has a far greater moral weight weight than being like, hey, yeah, this dragon stole a bunch of our money, so we're gonna steal our money back. Like, this is a few, you know, decades, centuries ago. Like, it's, 
this is revenge and retribution, not uh, yeah. There's less something whole wholesome in the original conception. Oh. Yeah. Um, also, to kind of provide some of the uh, text that you mentioned for earlier views of the dwarves, um, like also obviously like Turin Turambar, but probably a really good one is the earlier versions, like the Book of Lost Tales version of the Nauglifring that becomes like the Fall of Doriath and like the Nauglamir. Um, so the Book of Lost Tales version, it doesn't have the dwarves as explicitly in league with Morgoth. Like, I'm not sure where that's from, but to be fair, I haven't read all of that material either. But it does have them as very, like, evil and sinister figures. And there's just, there's like a lot of, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of red flags and, like, really really old racist medieval stereotypes in there that are like combined in different ways that it's not fully straightforward but anyway yeah um point being there's a lot of um mm. the, the, yeah though if you want to find evil dwarves in like tolkien's early writings before they became good uh the earlier version of like Thingol's death and the Nauglifring, the necklace of the dwarves, is where to go look for it in Book of Lost Tales. Um, I also think there's an argument to be made for Tolkien. Uh, I like I've seen the argument made um, for Tolkien post World War Two, like realizing that you have to be a lot more responsible and not willy nilly accidentally put anti-Semitic stereotypes everywhere. <laughs> Um, I think the change of view uh, on the dwarves can be explained by like Tolkien changing, like having his world develop and his writing like expand, etc. But I think you could also justify it as in world because when we talked about mm. the similarly and we talked a lot about how how the elves wrote the Silmarillion. It's an elvish text. Oh, yeah. It's from an elvish perspective who are like not happy with the dwarves, who are like those little hairy little shits. Um, <laughs> and they don't like them. They really don't, even more so than anything. And in, in, in The Hobbit, it's a hobbit writing it, but... Um, and uh, like so he he he's not sure what dwarves are but he mainly sees them as what they appear in the shire and they appear as what merchants people who travel people who sell things uh they're a bit weird because they don't settle in a nice hobbit hall and grow things <laughs> but they also are not absolutely outlandish and dangerous because they like do have contact and they're civils uh civil mm. contact um and by the time of writing the hobbit uh, the, the lord of the ring like the tone of the lord of the ring too is very different it's like uh a tone of wow that was epic and so obviously the dwarf and like one of, and, and like frodo who wrote it no dwarves through his uncle's adventure and retelling of adventure 
maybe potentially through the dwarves visiting him in like visiting Bilbo uh, when Frodo is very young um, and he personally knows Gimli so obviously there's a much more positive image because it's like yeah no dwarves are not all a bunch of like thieves and brigand and terrorists and like hairy little shits they are like nobles and brave and a warrior like and why do they know that because they actually talked to dwarf instead of knowing them um and and i think that's very interesting because it's and i don't know how accidental it is that um that tolkien's evolution of the vision of his vision of dwarves translate into his narrative style of the narrator is not to be trusted because it's a point of view on this world that I'm sharing with you, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. So I don't know how, how much he probably didn't do yeah. that, but um, because as we talked about, he developed that those ideas about the dwarves as he was writing and stuff and developing his world. But it's interesting how he translates and still is consistent yeah. with his approach of you can't trust the narrator. The narrator is biased. The narrator is only one person writing a history book, or like like a not a history book, but like writing stories of what they have heard or yeah. listened to. I mean, I think it's it's all. I mean, also very interesting, like going through because like a lot of the stuff that he would later like canonize in Lord of the Rings is like. Oh right, we have like translations. Um, from uh, uh, right, these are ver- like versions from translations of the, like copies of the Red Book, um, stuff. Right, this whole like made up history of how he got the various versions, and also that's how he, in world, um, says why um, <laughs> there are different right the. Uh, the actual story with Gollum changes between his initial version, um, the 1938 released Hobbit, and uh, later editions, which I also learned because um, those revisions of the Hobbit didn't actually come out until after Lord of the Rings is published, which is why in Lord of the Rings they make a point of saying Bilbo lied. Yeah, because <laughs> um, yeah. they had to. But- Right, because it's like I I knew they changed, but I hadn't ever realized that the that the uh, the second edition basically of the Hobbit didn't come out until after Lord of the Rings was published. So that's weird. Um. Anyways, but I I, I wanted to say that all this like kind of the the kind of the all the mentions of like modern technology, um. Right. Stuff. There's a very like Tolkien. Even here is trying like has a tendency that he likes of like, oh, this stuff really happened, um, and you know, there is a connection somehow between what you're reading here and what the life you're living now, right? He he likes this Middle Earth is also our world connection. Um, even even in this like child right in this story about hobbits, 
um, that is like, you know, oh, hobbits exist. You just big, stupid people like you don't see them because they're too quiet and hide when you ever you come walking down the road. Um, and go, you know, goblins and industry connection. Like, there's a whole lot of. I, I forget where I was going with those, but that that connection of like wanting wanting it in some way to feel real or like or imagined history and not just fairy stories that you understand as just complete make believe.